in every cycle is a good time to invest in multifamily. It just has to be the right deal. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. Special guest today, Reed Bennett, who is a multifamily broker over at SVN, brings real-time anecdotal data to the conversation about multifamily, where it's at, where the opportunities might be in the near future. He has over 20 years of experience brokering and investing in multifamily. So today's episode is very timely. Uh, we talk a lot about the whiplash that's happening in the market, where those opportunities may or may not be. And he relates this uh, you know, scenario back to 2008, 2009. So fascinating conversation. You guys are going to get a lot of information today. Enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Invest for the Win. As you guys know and gals know, our goal on the podcast is to provide unique insights into the private investment world by using not only our own experience navigating transactions in today's marketplace, but as well as diving into stories and perspectives of experts in private investing and in real estate and private business operations. And on today's show, we have Reed Bennett of SVN Commercial Real Estate Advisors. And today we're talking about working in the commercial real estate space, specifically multifamily and how investors and brokers can stay relevant, optimistic, and keep a level head. Reed, who's also a CCIM member, serves at a, as a National Council Chair of Multifamily Properties for SVN International. As a licensed managing broker, he focuses primarily on the sale of apartment communities across the Midwest and the country now, and also teams up with members of his council to serve clients across the country in over 150 markets, which is very awesome to get this insight today. So Reed prides himself on understanding the nuances and, and analysis of multiple unit apartment dwellings. And this is a, a cool niche that we'll talk about, low income, Section 8 and Section 42 communities. Really a big hat off to read here. In 2016, 2018, and in 2021, he received the Partner Circle Award from SVN, where he's ranked in the top 0.02% among all 1,600 SVN advisors in the world for the third time. So, Reed, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive in to the multifamily space. You have a lot more there I could read, but I think that gives the listeners a really good idea of who we're talking to, who you are. Uh, but I want to hear from your eyes. You know, I provided a brief overview, but tell us, you know, through your experience and through your eyes, how you got started in this industry. I always love the origin stories. No, it's great. Uh, and, you know, thank you for having me on. Um, I've been on a number of podcasts over the last few years and, this was the longest lead time podcast of, of about 30 I've been on. So I think I think uh, your, your people reached out to my people in July and we're, we're finally on in the middle, middle of November. So appreciate you, uh, you know, reaching out. Um, I, so I got started, you know, we were talking before we went on. Uh, I went to school at University of Iowa and my one of my roommates uh, stayed back. Uh, you know, a bunch of my friends did the, what, what do they call the five-year, the victory lap. Oh yeah. Uh, so a bunch of my roommates stayed back and, and uh, my one roommate bought a house 
and rented it to the rest of uh, my knucklehead friends from from college. And he took that and started, he ended up with a portfolio of, I think, over 40 homes in Iowa City. Wow. Uh, eventually sold that portfolio, bought an apartment complex in Austin. And he sent me he sent me this book that I'm sure 99% of the people uh, mention on, on podcasts is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I read that because I was running a personal training studio at the LaSalle Wacker building downtown Chicago um, after I graduated college. And I'll never forget. So, so all of my clients were real estate uh, brokers or lawyers. And there was this one real estate broker that would come down and he would show me a check for his closing. And it was more than like two years of me busting my hump as a personal trainer in this studio downtown Chicago. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy just made that, this guy, you know, kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I started looking at smaller um, multifamily buildings because to me, I could understand that and reading these books, I could understand, you know, people need a place to live. And, um, you know, it's, it's nowadays, it's even more important when you're deciding which food group and commercial real estate to, to go with. So, you know, and I always say, you know, if you're in the office space, everybody's now working remotely. If you're in the retail space, everybody's, you know, buying online. Um, you know, the only thing you can't do is live online at this point. Um, you know, so until you can create a phone booth and everybody can go home and think they're in a 20,000 square foot mansion, they're going to need an apartment to live in. Yep. So I started the neighborhoods of Chicago um, driving up. This was so this was uh, 2000. 2001, you know, back in the days when, uh, um, you know, a camera, a digital camera could hold 99 pictures. So I would drive up and down the streets taking pictures of all the corner walk-ups and the courtyard buildings in, in the Chicago neighborhoods, um, you know, started, you know, brokering those deals, really learning uh, how a lot of groups were understanding these. Majority of what I was dealing with uh, back from 2002 to 2007 uh, was dealing with condo converters. That's all that was going on in Chicago. Everybody and their brother was getting involved. Uh, at one point, I had 176 condo converters in my database just on the northwest side of Chicago. And I truly thought that there were going to be no apartment buildings. Everything was going to be converted yeah. um, you know, until 2008. And then in 2008, a lot of the, you know, we started looking at the larger apartment complexes. Many of my clients were selling their apartment buildings in Chicago and wanting to invest. And none of the numbers made sense in Chicago for apartments for operating them. So we started pushing out into the complexes in, you know, the suburban markets, Northwest Indiana, Iowa, Wisconsin, um, and started looking at uh, apartment complexes. And, you know, then uh, I bought into to SVN in 2008 and then in 2013, I became the National Council Chair of Multifamily. And in that, I just coordinate with all the 225 offices around the country to work with them. Um, you know, my partner, uh, Cody Doran, and I, right now, we're working in eight different states with eight of our colleagues. Um, so what we can do is anywhere in the country that any of our clients are looking, we have boots on the ground in those markets. We can have them drum up some deals. Uh, we just closed a deal in uh, Durham, North Carolina, two weeks ago. We have another 826 units in Syracuse, New York, with another one of our partners. 
So I really like going around the country and finding um, opportunities for clients. And we just, you know, I no longer just serve Chicago in the Chicago metro area. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a quick snapshot of, of where I got, to, you know, how we got to this point. Can you take us back to 2001 when you are driving up the streets and taking pictures with a digital camera versus how real estate is transacted mm. now in 2022? <laughs> I mean, holy cow. I mean, that's yeah, that's true. That's 21 years. But yeah, I mean, a lot has changed throughout that period of time. So oh, my question man. is, is this since you have such an extensive background, you've been in the industry for 20 plus years, you know, how have you stayed you know, with the times, so to speak, when I'm, I don't even think the, you know, you know, co-star loop net wasn't around no. for your first however many years, right? No. So it was completely done differently. Uh, and you've had to position yourself as a thought leader and an expert throughout many different cycles and a long period of time. So just talk to us a little bit about that, because there's a lot of folks here, you know, multifamily real estate has become a hot button over the last 10 years, I would say, and really no, sure. the last five years for sure. Um, but it was done differently way back when. And you still said that in Chicago, you know, the multifamily, you know, numbers didn't make sense and they didn't work. And we're still seeing that across a lot of different markets. But I'm really curious to understand, since you've been in the industry for 20 plus years, kind of the changing landscape of commercial real estate, the way that it's marketed, the way that it's done and being able to stay relevant and, and position yourself as a thought leader throughout all of that period of time. That's really impressive. Sure. Sure. No, I appreciate that. Um it is interesting because when when I first got my desk at the LaSalle Wacker building downtown, you know, I was the youngest guy by maybe 23 years. And then many of the guys were older, than, much older than that. So I was at an office full of dinosaurs, right? Nobody had a computer. They were still, they were still typing up listing agreements on a typewriter. Um, and, you know, I was, I think I was the first one to get a computer you know, and I remember one guy coming into my office and picking up the mouse going, what, what's this? I mean, so that's how bad it was um, at that time. And so eventually I, you know, convinced everybody to get CoStar. And once CoStar came out, because before, like I said, we would take the pictures, I'd go and drive up and down, take the pictures, bring it back, give it to the secretary. She would look it up on the county records, or I'd have to go down to the county building and take that picture and find the owner and then figure out how to database and call that way. Now you can get it instantaneous. I mean, I've had a number of juniors since I've been on, you know, in this business that they're frustrated if they don't have every single thing instantaneously in their, in their database, all the ownership, you know, everything, which you can get now, which is crazy. Um, so I remember when CoStar came out, everybody said, there's going to, you know, brokers are going to die because everybody can get the information. They can call themselves. Then LoopNet came out. Every, you know, brokers are going to die because everybody can now just post their own complex on, on LoopNet and sell it themselves. And then the things still happen where it's like the internet is so crazy and the, inter the information you can get. I mean, I can understand, you know, your Kansas City market in about two days, the entire thing, who's buying, what the prices are, price per square foot, which is ridiculous. That took six months, you know, to figure that out. Yeah. The, the main thing that I've noticed, and I had one of my clients tell me this, he said, you, you're, you're never going to, you know, your business is never going to die. The good brokers are never going to die because I, the guy said, I have a personality that I'll F up the deal if I talk direct to the buyer or to the seller. 
I'll say something. I have a, you know, my, my personality is such that I'll say something to them. It's going to tip them off. I won't be able to make that deal. You are a buffer, you know? So we, as <laughs> we, as brokers, and you might appreciate this being a broker uh, back in the day, we listen to, you know, when we're negotiating a contract, right. We listen to this, to the seller say, you know what, tell that guy to, you know, go pound sand. And I never want to hear from him again. These are, this is embarrassing. And so then we take that, we hear that, we filter to the other ear and we say to the, to the buyer, no, he really wasn't pleased with that offer, but, you know, let's make a couple adjustments, (laughs) adjustments here in order to make that transaction. So, you know, I think there's always a need for an intermediary for certain groups of people. Sure, deals get made off market, but I think 77% of deals in the multifamily spaces that I work are done through brokers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and we're 20 at the end of 2022 going into 23, I think it's going to be even more important because the 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 sell versus buy gap right now that we see is it's a cavern right now, right? So all the sellers are sitting there saying, I've had all these three cap offers. I mean, we we offered a, a 2.67 cap on a 1980s vintage 300 unit outside of Chicago that the seller didn't take last year. There's no way for the next five years, they're ever going to see that price. So now what we're seeing is, and, and, and the buyer's are able to, they're much more nimble, right? Because they're the ones going to get, and you know this, you're the one that's going to your lenders and going out to price debt. And so you get that instantaneous response of what 300 basis points has just done to your underwriting capacity. Sellers are not that way right now. So they're saying, I had five unsolicited offers in December of last year, or even in March of this year. It's not March of this year. And even the deals that have been closing the past two months were already put under contract when the you know they locked their rates before the debt went crazy. So even when I say, you know, a seller says, look, this guy just closed last month at 180,000 a unit for my 1970s product. It's not happening. Right. Yeah. In your experience, how long does that take to kind of you know, filter down to sellers, right? I mean, that's one thing that I've been trying to understand. We are brokering deals, we're trying to purchase deals, but I'm really curious, you know, since you've been up and down all these different cycles and probably maybe have seen something similar. I I don't know if it was that fast ever, um, you know, of of an interest rate hike. And so that's creating what Marcus and Millichap and I posted on earlier this week, uh, whiplash in the market. Because if you put a deal under contract in August of this year, and let's just say the interest rate was 5%, by October, closing time, your rate's now 6.65%. And so that's creating that whiplash. But how long does that usually take for, in your experience, to sellers to say, okay, uh, this is our new normal, here's where we're at, and how long do we have kind of that cavern that you mentioned? Uh, Well, the short answer is too long. Yeah. You know, um, so if, you know, the only thing that I can compare, what we call, you know, sellers trying to chase the bus to the next bus stop and then just missing the bus stop, you know, is 2008. So the transition from, you know, late 2007 into late 2008, uh, I'll never, the one thing that I always remember, I, I was, I was marketing a hundred unit deal in Chesterton, Indiana. And 
I showed that property 29 times throughout this process. And, and, you know, at that time it was 66,000 a door. So it was 6 million six. I brought them an offer right away at six, four. And they said, no, we have to be at six, five. That's our drop dead. And so I'd say, okay. And, and then it would take maybe two weeks. And then they'd, I'd, you know, have all these conversations. I say, Hey, look, here's where people are underwriting it. I'm not even getting to, you know, a six, two number right now for most people. And then they're like, fine, go back to that guy. We'll take the six, four. So I'd go back to the group and I'd say, we're at 6-4. They said, give me 15 minutes. Get back. We're at 6-1. So then I'd go back to the seller and say, they're at 6-1 right now. They're, ah, it's, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. They're playing around. And then it would be like two, I mean, it would happen in two-week increments. And that's when I was talking about running to catch that deal, realizing that deal's gone. And then by the time you're like, okay, fine, uh, I'll adjust my expectations to this price. That price is gone. That deal ended up, um, we were at, so we were started at 6-4. They, they fired me when we were at 5-1. They gave it to another broker and they couldn't sell it for four. So they that was a group that didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on. I mean, shit, I, excuse me. I, I was trying to understand the dynamics because, you know, that was my first down cycle. And I was like, you know, I remember thinking, okay, this is going to take six months. Let's retrench. And we'll come back and it ended up taking maybe three years, right. you know? And so right now we're dealing with a situation on a property where we, we listed it. I mean, it took, it took the seller to finally agree to list it with us. I mean, that three month last, it just, it reminded me of this deal. I mean, we're talking, we're in this today, right. um, you know, where this, this seller is, has had to try to realize where, and, and, and this guy is, um, he's understanding and he's reasonable, but it's, it's very painful. Sure. To, to come to this realization when you're talking about, you know, you may have lost, you know, on a small deal, you may have lost a million dollars in value on a large deal. You know, you could be eight figures that you lost if you didn't act quick in the early part of this year. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if that's that answers your question, but that's what I'm seeing right now. And, and you're talking, you know, Yardy Matrix did a, a fantastic um, webinar um, at the end of the spring. And they were talking about with the interest rate adjustments, it's not the Fed interest rate adjustments, it's actual mortgage interest rate adjustments. When they, for every 35 basis points, a mortgage rate rises, you have to, you have to have 4% higher NOI to equate to the same price. And that's, that's ridiculous to try to do in this market because the expenses from inflation have jacked up and even though, you know, so I have a lot of sellers that say, no problem. I've already, I raised my rents last year, 15%. I'm raising them again. There's a certain point, especially in workforce housing, that you have the tenant's arm behind their back and they're screaming, uncle, they, they can't, they can't adjust to that. So they're no longer will be able to absorb these rental rate increases and your expenses are rising. And so we've done inflationary audits for a lot of our, uh, of our owners to, to show them, look, I don't care what your T12 says on the expenses. You know, if, if let, let's let's keep your taxes the same because taxes are a whole different thing depending on what municipality you're in. The cost of gas if you're heating your units has skyrocketed over 10.3%. You know, your your labor if you can find it in this market is skyrocketing. People are not working for anything less than, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks an hour depending on what trade you're looking for. So 
the cost to operate these deals, as you as you very well know, is rising. So just to say, no problem, I'll just I'll raise my NOI 4%, for, and that's 35 basis points. So they've gone up 300. So now you have to be, raise your NOI 26% or higher in order to hit that same price. And that's where people are, are having a difficult time in this market. Yeah. And, you know, you think back to like Howard Marks and Dalio and, and how long the psychology takes, um, you know, there's a lot of different mental models around that. But I mean, in practicality, I'm seeing the same exact thing. And I'm, I'm just curious to know and like think about how long this actually, you know, goes on for. And I, I don't think anybody really knows. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's you get right. in your head where the last few years have been so good if you owned multifamily on on a you know on a on a regular basis. I mean, if you had the right properties, I mean, I think the United States rank growth year over year for 2020 to 2021 was 17%. Yes. And you look at what real page is putting out, I'm sure you already is we're not seeing that anymore. You know, right. the city, Midwest markets never really got to that level. You know, I think we topped out here at like 7.6%, which is a you know a banner year in rent growth for Kansas City. Um, but exactly. now we're back down to three or four percent. And so you have you have the seller psychology, but then you have buyer psychology that says, well, I can't underwrite if you're being a prudent investor, you can't underwrite those same type of, of rental increases. And hopefully you weren't doing that anyways. But if you were, you might find yourself in a in a tough position. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, if 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 that's the case, right? And you have folks that bought really low cap rate deals if there is going to be any pain in the marketplace, so to speak. And there's kind of two sides to this story, right? You have, hey, you know, we still need this amount of rental housing units. And so there's still a huge demand. There's a huge demand, but there's a huge demand, in my opinion, for affordable rental units, not the class A necessarily uh, brand new uh, product. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but I'm just wondering if, if these folks that bought deals the last few years Maybe they put a capital, you know, capital, you know, structure in there in place where they, they have floating rate debt. You think there's going to be any opportunities here for uh, prudent investors to step in if they have access to a certain level of debt or equity or they can take a, a longer term hold, you know, horizon? Like, what is your thought back to 2008, 2009? How were commercial real estate investors being successful during that period of time? Yeah, well, without a doubt, there's going to be opportunity, right? So. Um, just just like there was in 2009, 10, and 11, when you know the the people that were able to put those deals together just created ridiculous amounts of wealth. Right. Um, there was a ton of pain, obviously, from the groups that were over leveraged, and that's that's the, the issue that we're going to see here, right? So, you know, so back in in 2008 and nine, there were groups that we dealt with that had to be 85 percent occupied in order to break even on the debt they had. Well. You know, obviously, that's not going to work well for you in the end. Sure. And so, anybody that took out took out short term debt, you know, five, seven, even ten year, depending on when they took it out, you're we're going to be seeing a uh, cash in refi, right? And so, not a lot of people have have put enough money aside to you know to to put. A million, two million dollars back into the property just to just to reset their debt, and so that's where there's going to be significant pain. And you know, we're talking about syndicators. 
I, in 22 years, I've never seen more syndicators get into the market. I mean, especially when you see everybody on LinkedIn, right? right. Where they're saying, you know, we just went full circle and we got, you know, we forexed it and, you know, had a, a, a 76 IRR and you're seeing all of this because they caught it perfectly at the beginning and they caught it perfectly in the back end. Right. But if you're underwriting deals with a with an exit cap of three or four, I mean, we were looking at even five, you know, you're going to have a hard time, you know, especially because we also see a lot of syndicators that get a, um, what is it when they, when they refinance the deal, they get, you know, a, a fee if they refi and give their lenders or their, their investors 50% of their money back, which in essence is a, is a, a most of the lenders or the, um, your LPs are going to say, yeah, I don't care. Shoot. I'll give you a 2% fee. If you get me all my money back or half of my money back at a certain time, I think that's going to be the challenge. Yeah, there you are. So what, what I think we're going to see is if there's a, if there's a little debt um, on the property or the property is close to free and clear, we're going to see a lot of seller carry options. We're already working on three of those right now. Sure. Um, or, uh, and some of the best debt was the HUD 223F, right? So it's a 35-year fixed debt, and some of these uh, groups levered it up to 85%. We're doing an assumption right now. It's a 2.39% assumption. You know, it's a rate, and it's held for till 2056. So those deals are going to be the so. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's that's you know, you heard it here first. I mean, I think that. I am in line with your your thinking and being a young investor, I'm just trying to learn, uh, you know, from previous cycles, right? And when I when I I was smiling as you were speaking because you know the one thing that we did really really well was we bought at a really good period of time where you know prices were dropping and they were historically at at lows, but we also put at least five year fixed rate debt, if not sometimes ten year fixed rate debt. On these projects. So I think my first really maturity comes up in 2025 or 2026. And so, you know, I, I have a little bit of, of runway and I think our, our basis across our 1400 units is like $70,000, uh, you know, a unit. And so we're, we're in a really good spot there, but well, I'm, well, I have something that might make you feel better then. So I just went down to this event last week in Dallas or two weeks ago in Dallas called Massimo Khan, and it was oh, yeah. 350 um brokers from around the country and rod Santamassimo runs this i i coach for the uh, his platform and he had i think 10 seven to eight figure producers on a pan you know that that gave their secret sauce and one of the guys i was talking to to, to bob knackle who's jll out in new york i mean he does a ridiculous amount of business and so i was talking to him on the side and i said so like, what are your thoughts going into next? Cause he's a big multifamily broker. What are, you know, what are your thoughts going into next year? Like what, you know, what do you think the angle is going to be? And what he said was my, uh, my, my mantra is stay alive till 25. And I was like, so if your first thing's coming, you know, your first, uh, your first deal is maturing in 25, it sounds like you're going to be all right. So um, but it was a little unsettling to hear that. Yeah, stay you know? alive till 25. <laughs> I might have to steal that. For right. Sure. You know, I, I was with um, some folks that had been in the business for, for quite some time. Um, Post Investment Group was one of the guys that I really enjoyed sure. hearing 
uh, back in January, and he stood up there, a couple billion in assets or whatever it is, you know, just been in the business for a long time, does a lot of light tech stuff as well. Yeah. He, he said, hey, this is a knife fight every single day. And you hear that from that guy up there that that was his target for this year is to do a billion dollars in acquisition. He's saying it's a knife fight every single day and still has the Sunday scaries to come in on Monday and see what his team's working on and things like that. You know, those are the things that I think need to be said about this industry and, and this in this space, not the, okay, I'm going to listen to this podcast and then I'm going to go raise capital and find a deal, probably overpay for it and hope I can sell it in two years. And I think yeah. that there's a little bit of a, you know, a syndicator bubble, you yep. know, that, that uh, very well could pop in. Why, why we have not been able to purchase multifamily this year is, well, I mean, at the beginning of the year, it was still the hottest thing around, right? I mean, yeah. and the only deal that we were able to close was one that we were working on in December and it closed in March finally and and locked in 10-year fixed rate debt at 3.59%. You know, and the other one was a very distressed scenario where we stepped in and solved the problem. Um, I wonder if there's going to be more of those opportunities. And I I just uh, think about trying to be a prudent investor during these periods of times and say, look, you know, we got to learn. We have to be, you know, conservative and don't get our head over our skis a little bit. Uh, when it comes to that. But I, I look at the industry as a whole and I see folks, I talk to folks on a regular basis through LinkedIn, podcasts, whatever. And like, I'm like, you know, are you doing this full time? They're like, no. I'm like, who's doing your management? Well, we have third party. Okay, that's fine. But who's doing your asset management? Well, I do it on the weekends and at night. And I'm just like, you know what? That is just a recipe where I know I've got five, six people out in this office working on this stuff on a regular basis yeah. full time. And it's like, I just, I just wonder if that's going to have some sort of influence for our, uh, for this industry and, and kind of where it's going to, to go and what's going to happen. I'm not a doom and gloom type of individual sure. go follow those folks on, on LinkedIn. I like listening and reading their, their posts and, and things like that to get a different perspective. But I do have anecdotal data that says I know 50 syndicators that are trying to get their capital raising business up and going, and they are not true operators. They probably don't even live in the market that they're investing in. And those are the types of opportunities that I think that are going to come around. And, and I do think it's going to be fragmented. I think it's going to be, okay, you know, I see MMG, who's a up and coming broker here and brokerage here in Kansas City. I know their team very well. I've tried to build really great relationships with them. And I have a feeling that at some point, those deals that they're sending us that we never transacted on and we're never the, high, the highest bidders, those deals are going to land on our desk and say, hey, can you rescue this one? Do yeah. you have capital for that one? And here's this opportunity. And so yeah. that's one opportunity that we see. The other is, okay, well, maybe somebody over leveraged or overpaid for a deal, um, you know, getting higher up in the cap stack in regards to preferred equity opportunities instead of uh, just common equity opportunities is the other kind of, you know, avenue that we're potentially going down here very soon and just trying to underwrite, you know, projects that we think and we, we could take over on the management side, but also, you know, provide preferred equity opportunities. Are you seeing a lot of preferred equity coming into deals right now to help on the lower leverage kind of scenarios? Yeah, yeah, we're we're working on one right now with that, where um, you know they're they're bringing in thirty percent preferred equity to a deal, but you know something that you'd mentioned, and you know you're saying that you've been looking at all these deals. I heard an older investor one time tell me some of the best deals I ever got involved in were the ones that I came in second and didn't win, mm -hmm. because if I would have won that deal, I'd be bankrupt right now. 
That's right. Um, and so, you know, you have to really think about, and I know um, from, from your standpoint, uh, trying to acquire deals, it takes you weeks, if not months to go in, fly out, look at the properties, do your due diligence, underwrite the market, and then you come in second. And I'm, I, you know, I'm telling you, many of those deals you came in second or third, they're going to come back around to you. Um, and if you would have bought those, you might be in a, in a bind right now. And that that's one of the things, um, you know, you mentioned a couple brokerage firms. It's like, as a broker, we're always trying to, you know, win the deal and win the listing. And so you're trying to, you know, my, my challenge being a broker is I've, I've always, if I didn't believe in a, in a price um, that I could achieve as a broker, I'd, I, I would set the ceiling. I say, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be able to achieve that. Well, so-and-so and so-and-so said they can get it and go with so -so. Um, You know, and that's just always the, the challenge that we have. And um, I think in an up market, you, you know, a majority of the buyers can make mistakes, bad mistakes, and still be corrected and be bailed out and even make money. In this market that we're experiencing now, you make a misstep because you make your money on the buy. I'm sure you've heard everybody tell you that. You make it on the buy, you don't make it on the sell. So if you don't buy it right, you're never, it's going to take you 10 years to catch up. And then you'll catch up and then you'll be in a position where you're breaking even and giving your, you know, your investors their money back, which is not what they want. So. That, that's that's the challenge. And, um, you know, I think if you stay the course and I've been looking and watching your stuff and seeing what you guys are doing, I, I think you'll be you're going to be successful, especially thing, in the field. One thing that I really enjoy from Bridgewater, which is Dalio's firm, you know, he, they put together the they're big on cycles and understanding that the liquidity cycle where, you know, basically where we mm -hmm. were, you know, back in 2020, central bank eases, then liquidity improves growth rises, and then you get where they start to tighten. Now liquidity tightens, risk premiums and risk rise and assets fall, growth slows, and then the, the, the cycle goes through, right? I mean, it's a it's a natural progression. And I think, you know, Dalio called this, I mean, he was talking about this quite uh, regularly back in yeah. last December, and I was reading it and just kind of watching what was going on. And if you didn't get in the right time and you were buying these assets and you're you're stuck with it now, there is going to be some pain. And so, anyways, from a commercial real estate investor standpoint, you know, let's let's talk to let's maybe shift to somebody who's maybe buying assets or or trying to invest, you know, in assets with a you know experienced sponsorship group or things like that. I mean, what is your overall thesis or or thought process right now? Is you know, if somebody wants to be a passive investor and they're coming in and they're starting to evaluate deals, what should they be? thinking about is, is now a good time to be investing into multifamily real estate? I mean, what what uh, what advice, if you have any, that you would maybe give to a, just a, a passive investor, not a, an active sponsor? Sure. I think every, every day in every cycle is a good time to invest in multifamily. It just has to be the right deal. And, and you know, you were talking about the, the historics. Um, I heard one... Um, one economist, Dr. Dodsauer, talk about, he said, uh, lenders have what's called seven-year amnesia, right? So they don't remember what happened seven years ago. And so that's when they start, you know, loosening up the, their lending parameters and their, their debt coverage ratios and that. So that's where then they help, uh, to a certain extent, the investors get into deals that might not be, you know, might not make sense. But to, you know, to your question about, so... I think what's going to happen is 
the deal volume is going to shrink drastically, right? So, but that's that's not a bad thing to me because that weeds out, it's going to weed out on the brokerage side. I follow that, you know, 2008 to nine, it cut out over 54% of the brokers gone, wow. right? So it's going to, and, and I think it's going to do the same thing with the syndicators, especially the, the, the groups that you're talking about that are doing it in nights and weekends after their, you know, accounting job that they spend during the day. Th those groups are gone and they will be because what you're now going to have to find as a, uh, you know, the key principal investor, the GP, you're going to have to find the deals that you don't have to put $15,000 a unit into in order to get a $100 bump. You want to find those deals that are, you know, 25, 30% vacant that you just, you know, you, to me, some of my favorite value adds are from a management perspective, right? So you come in, if you can write the ship of a poorly managed asset right off the bat, and you know, work orders, you, you, you don't take four months to get to a work order, you take, you know, two days, and then your tenants start seeing. So we have groups that buy these deals, and they do uh, some kind of an upgrade that every tenant on the property can see they do something once a month, whether it's redo the parking lot, redo the lighting, you know, cut all the brush that's blocking all the windows. If you're doing those kind of things to add value, and you can adjust uh, maybe a poorly managed asset, that's where I think a lot of the value is going to be this, you know, it's funny because I also, I, I saw a post one time years ago where it said, you know, a, a if the building was completed in November of 2022, built by God, a broker is still going to market it as a value add opportunity, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's going to be a lot more, well, it's, I don't know, to me, it's easy to figure out the value add components. You know, you're looking for the groups that have owned them for 43 years that, that don't care whether or not they've stayed in line with what the latest rents are. You know, they're, they're two, uh, and my favorite deals, which we've sold three of them in the last two years, were owners that owned them for 20 to 40 plus years. We just sold one that the developer, it was a 50 year old deal that it was the original developer. These, they don't care. They, they, they don't care about maximizing for their investors the rent. They're just like, look, I just want to be 100% occupied. Beautiful. So those are, the, those are the deals that you know, you're going to be looking out for as a GP. The ones that just were bought three years ago, they're not, you know, you have to, I think what you're going to have to look at is when were these deals purchased? And, um, you know, the, the distressed debt deals, they haven't, they haven't come up yet. You know, we've seen a couple here and there, but it hasn't been this like flood that we were expecting. I mean, I remember, I, so I do a national multifamily call for SVN for the, um, and we did it every month. We're doing it quarterly now. So I'll never forget the one that I had uh, two guys on from Fannie and Freddie. And this was um, March, or no, this was April of 2020, right? So that's always the last Thursday of the month. So it was the end of April, and everybody was talking about what the collections were going to be in, in May, uh, if you remember that. And so one of the guys from Freddie said, you know, I would be telling your multifamily owners to expect 50% collections May 1, May Day. And the, the, the guy from uh, Freddie or Fannie said, no, I, I would expect 25%. And I'll never forget, I, I, you know, coming home from the office and going to my wife and saying, 
should we should we just is this going to be oh eight nine ten should we just stop paying the mortgages and start stockpiling cash because i remember a lot of investors did that um and so there's no reason that things should have gone up and doubled in 2021 there's no reason other than free money was out there and trillions were pumped in and you know, we're now experiencing what I thought we should have experienced in May of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, with, with the Fed raising rates, you know, 75% every week <laughs> or 75 basis points every week, it's just, it's becoming a challenge. Yeah. You know, Howard Marks talked about the, the, uh, the elusivity of the invisible hand right now is not sure. there, right? I mean, sure. there, you know, so free market interest rates are not out there. And we experienced that the last, you know, two years for sure. And I remember like the, you know, thinking through, you know, people being like, okay, well, I'm work from home. I'm going to do all these things, you know, um, not going to spend any money, so to speak. And then the stock market just going through the roof. And I was just like, <laughs> what is going on? We're in a global pandemic. Right. And then I started to really dive into Richard Duncan and economics and understand liquidity. And that's been a two year experience for me now, you know, yeah. and, and it all makes sense, right? I mean, it yeah. all really does make a lot of sense. And it's the same thing in the commercial real estate world in the multifamily space, you know, when that debt is available, you know, asset prices rise and when it's not, they, they lower. And so that's what we're experiencing right now. And it's been wild because, you know, getting started buying properties in 18 and 19, which is when I got started purchasing. Yeah. Um, you know, I can remember back thinking through mm -hmm. cap rates and, and helping people purchase and sell at that period of time and buying stuff. And, you know, we were, they were complaining about an interest rate rise of like, you know, 25 basis points to like 5.25%, oh, yeah. right? I was just yeah. like, what are we complaining about right now? Right. You're buying at an eight or nine cap. Like, what are we, what are we talking about? You know? So it's just interesting. And I remember when cap rates in Kansas city went from seven to six and a half, people started freaking out, you know, like, know. And, and then, and then we started to see three caps and four caps in Kansas city. It's like, Ridiculous. Whoa, you know, it's just wild to, to think about. So I always just go back. And when I talk to our investors, I say, look, we just have to go back to what is the intrinsic value of these cash flows, meaning what is the value of these cash flows to us, regardless if we're selling or not. It's always funny when people say, I can't believe my, my Z estimate on my house went up $150,000. I'm like, Doesn't okay, what, do you, what does that mean? It's a number on, a, on an app on your phone. Like It doesn't right. mean anything unless you're getting ready to sell. And so intrinsic value of cash flows is tried to, it just goes back to a basis, you know, play. And I remember being trained early on and saying, Logan, you know, when I was working for a fund, they said, when we're buying this property, I need to know what the rents are. And then we're going to buy at one and a half percent of the, of the annual rent. Right. And then you started to see them drop down to one and a quarter and then one, and then they just stopped, you know, they yeah. had all the money in the world. They stopped buying. And I was like, why'd you stop buying? So, well, you know, that rent for that, you know, they were buying houses so that that rent for that house was 1200 bucks, but it was $240,000. You know, it just didn't make any sense for us, you know? So I started to look at that from a multifamily perspective and I'm going to go spend two hours in investment committee after this next podcast recording. And they're going to go through the underwriting and look at it. I'm going to say, what are the average rents? Okay. You know, I'm going to look at it and I'm going to say, I bet we can pay this. And now that, that is, that is, less because of where the debt is. But earlier this year, we were still staying, you know, the 1% price to rent ratio. And we found very few deals 
uh, that pencil did that. But I think if you did do that and you purchased those and your rents were on average $750 and you paid $70,000 a unit for a good property in a good area, depending on what the occupancy was and what it needed from a CapEx standpoint, you're probably okay. Now, if yeah. you paid double that and you paid $150,000 a unit right. and you thought you were going to get the rents to $1,200 and you're not, um, or it's taking longer, that's the ones that are going to be in trouble. And I wonder what the, the that's reset what's happened. Yeah. yeah. That's what's happened. I mean, I, and, and that's, that's a simple metric and that's like, that's why I like multifamily. It's pretty damn simple. I mean, I like I like the hundred times rent per unit metric. I mean, so we look at all these different sanity checks, right? So, I mean, I, I love the, the groups that call and say my, or the owners that say my property is worth a five cap. And I say, okay, so, but, but what is that? I mean, if you're, if you're taking out your management and taking out asset management and taking out, you know, your repairs and maintenance, cause you're doing it yourself and all this kind of stuff. And your, your, your expense ratio is like 25%. It's a, it's, it's going to be a, like a, a 15 cap on that number. Right. So it's, I hate cap rates. Um, yeah, I hate price per unit because price per unit, you don't know if it's a two bedroom, two bath versus right. studio and, and the, the groups that own, one bedrooms and studios, they love price per unit because they're like, look, I'm, I, I need 150 a, a unit for this deal. I said, yeah, but your, your, your studios that are, you know, 650. So, you know, you have to go through all these sanity checks and we like to underwrite the deals and have the sanity checks flashing red on the side yeah. uh, of anything that's hitting it. And then we're saying, look, this, this is, you know, while it looks great on the surface from a price per unit or price per pound, this isn't a good deal you know, for, for some of our buy side clients. I love Rod Santomassimo. I do. And I follow him. I've talked to him. I just love the videos that I put out. They put out with one broker that has been in the business for a long time, how he goes in and talks to sellers about pricing. And I just thought it was golden because, you know, he, he, he went through his model and, and his talk track. And he basically said, look, I'm going to look at what's out there for rent you know, for sale. And I'm going to price this below the best one, the best comp that I've got. Right. And if that seller is not willing to do that, I don't do the deal. Right. And so I had a call with a seller, you know, like a week later with my senior broker. And he was like, Hey man, I need $240,000 a unit for this, for this property. I said, you know, Hey, I, I understand what you need, but I think I can get you 120. And he was like, Oh, there's just no way that's <laughs> half of what and, um, you know, we didn't get the listing, obviously, and it went live. And I actually was with him on a trip, the owner. And I said, hey, how did that property go? And he's like, oh, man, you know, we pulled it off the market. We didn't get anywhere close with these interest rate rises. I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't spend two months of my time and exactly. dedicated to that. So anyways, I appreciate that insight. And I just love that you are a coach for the Massimo Group. That's a that's a plug here. I think if you're in the commercial real estate brokerage world, that's a phenomenal resource for you to go and check out. Um, and I, I, I would I would love to hear. Uh, more takeaways from Massimo Khan. Maybe we'll have to we'll have to do that uh, offline. But I do want to get into one prediction, and we've talked a little bit about this, you know, throughout the call. But uh, I got two questions really left for you. The first one is, you know, if you had one prediction for multifamily, you know, transaction volumes, the industry just as a whole over the next twelve months, you know, what's that? You said uh, there's there's uh, sanity checks here. What's the sanity check that's kind of going through your mind right now when you're talking to either buyers, sellers, investors? Oh man. So, so you're asking me, you know, th there's a, a guy in your backyard, Jay Maderi, And I, I, I talked to him during the down, during like the, the, the beginning parts of COVID. And he's like, what do you think is going to happen here? And I said, Jay, 
I have no idea. He goes, good, because if you would have told me what you what your prediction was, I would have hung up the phone on you. So, so, so now, because nobody knows. Um, but I, I think there's there's obviously going to be um, the deal volume is going to to be cut in half. Yeah. You know, so the because at this point, this this only the sellers that really want to or really need to sell are going to be selling. It's not, you know, the last two years has been, well, if you can get me this ridiculous number, I'm a seller and we'd get them the ridiculous number. Those are gone. So that's going to cut the deal volume in half. So it's going to be, you know, the groups that are, are, are feeling some, I guess, at some level, some kind of pain where they need to, they have a partnership dispute. They have, mm-hmm. you know, they, they realize that, you know, they're at the certain age where they're like, I don't want to do this grind anymore all day long. I want to spend time with my kids or grandkids. Those kind of people that want to and need to are going to be the only sellers. And then they have to be realistic uh, with, with the, with the market. So I would say, let's expect, let's expect half the deal volume and be pleasantly surprised if it's half or more, Um, you know, pricing. The thing about pricing is it hasn't adjusted much yet just because of, um, you know, trailing numbers and, you know, the the amount of, so now if the deal volume shrinks, you know, to 50%, you still have a hundred percent of the groups looking at that 50%, which is going to keep the pricing, you know, at a certain level above where it should be. And the other thing is um, what we experienced over the last two years is a lot of groups. And that's another thing to think about a lot of groups that were buying and syndicating retail and office jumped over. And when you switch asset classes to something you're not familiar with, you start, that, that's a lot of the overpaying we saw. Yeah. We're retail groups saying, look, I'm going to jump in this multifamily because Logan's doing it. And, you know, if he can do it, I can do it kind of thing. And, that's right. uh, but they don't understand the nuances and, and what, you know, what you've been researching for years and understanding and the deals you're seeing. So, you know, we're going to have still, I think, a little bit more of that, the, the groups washing over. Um, but really, the multifamily focused groups are going to be sticking and all trying to clamor over the same deals. Same thing with the brokers that we're all going to be looking at, you know, pitching the same deals and trying to find those deals that are going to work. So the pricing, I think, will remain there just because there's still money out there look chasing deals. There's a ton of it. Um, as, if that tapers off, it's going to drop. The deal volume again is going to be like a, a, a tiered system, which I think it will. Uh, but it, it's funny you're talking about some of the sellers I'm talking to. They're like, "Oh no, no, I'm I'm hearing all this stuff on Squawk Box that things are going to be going back up. No, or you know, interest rates are going to dive again. So forget that." Um, but and then the buyers are all saying, "No, it's going to be another 200 basis points." <laughs> so there's going to be a happy medium in there. But to me. Multifamily is the place to be. The fundamental, again, everybody needs a place to live. The ridiculous housing market crunch, um, where, where the prices shot up thirty. I mean, I refinanced my house; it went up thirty-five percent, which is ridiculous, you know. But people were paying that in my neighborhood here. Yep. So that also took the first-time home buyers out of the market. So they're going to remain renters for a longer period of time, and it's also taking some of the older. Uh, groups and they're saying, forget this. I don't want to own a house anymore. I'm going to sell and get back in the apartment market. So I just think the metrics are going to be there for multifamily. As long as you buy right, you know, take your hundred times rent. If you stick within that, you're going to be all right. And especially if you can raise it 
uh, a couple hundred bucks. Uh, if 50 to $100, if you buy it correctly, you'll be fine. But this ridiculous 15, 20%, you know, I'll just raise it is not going to be happening. Yeah. Well, that's good perspective and probably the best answer you can give when somebody asks you to pull out the crystal ball and tell us the future. So I appreciate yeah, right. it. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Favorite question. Uh, one of my favorite questions, ask everybody, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the intrinsic value of real estate. Yes. But what is the intrinsic value uh, to the individuals that I bring on the show. And so I'm, I'm curious, what inspires you and why do you do what you do on a regular basis? Well, I mean, the thing that inspires me is my family. So I have a, a, a seven-year-old and then we have a, another one due in, on Christmas Day. So, you know, wow. it's, uh, it's, you know, that's something that I, you know, I have to think about. And that's why I love real estate because, you can, you don't have to trade your time for money to a certain extent. There, there's no ceiling in what we do in this business on the brokerage end and on the investment side. Um, but the ultimate game is to get to a point, and I invest with a lot of my clients, um, you know, on the deals that we sell them and different deals they have. I'd love to invest with you and on a deal in the future. But to get to a point, I mean, just starting out to get to a point where all of your expenses are covered by passive income then you're then you're free beautiful thing and and, and to, to utilize real estate to become free to do whatever the hell you want is is to me the, the best value of real estate so what that's going to be spend more time with your family that's going to be spend more time you know with your family and trying to to buy more deals or create more wealth for others that you know your your um your limited partners or give back to whatever you know charity or, or you know purpose that you want to give back to real estate allows you to do that you can't do that in a nine to five job where you're just you know trying to grind it out and put your money into a 401k or a Roth IRA at the end of the year so couldn't agree more you I, I'm a big believer you get paid in this life in proportion to the size of the problems that you solve for people and the value that you bring and uh, that's one reason I love real estate because if you're able to do those two things, you can get compensated very handsomely. And if you're able to invest that capital that you make in the right way, it can create freedom. So that was beautifully said. Reed, if people want to follow you, learn more about SVN, what you're doing, maybe even the Mosmo uh, coaching that you do, where can they find you? How can they follow you and get in touch? Sure. Best way is uh, on LinkedIn. I try to stay as active as possible. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Also, my cell number is 773 251 7342. Oh. My email is read.bennett at svn.com. It's R E I D. Yeah. If you guys want to get in touch with Reed and learn about what he's got going on, just shoot me an email. Find me on LinkedIn as well. I'll get you guys connected. Reed, thank you so much for your time, your insights. I'm definitely going to have you back on here probably three months. And we're going to have a very similar conversation. <laughs> uh, I learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to find this valuable. So I really appreciate it. Awesome, Logan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.